If you have your Bibles, please open to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. While you're turning there, I just want to take a moment to commend um, last week's message to you once again. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that, Scott preached through the verses immediately preceding the ones we're going to read today and spend some time in. And I'm, I'm mentioning that simply because sometimes some of the most simple um, truths that we know so well are the ones we most we need to hear more than anything. And I shared this this Thursday night uh, at, around the table, and it's just one of those things, knowing that Jesus is right there with us in the midst of our trials, our storms, our struggles, and He's not bothered by them, like that, it's one of those things we know that, we get that, we, we get it intellectually. I don't know, it's just having gone through Revelation and, and seeing Jesus so close with His people in the midst of the churches, and then, and, and then hearing that message last week, that's just, it, it's landing on me in a new way, and God's, it's already just been amazing to see as I have situations come up and I'm dealing with people and various things, like just remembering Jesus is right here. He's not worried by this. Like he was asleep in their boat um, and they're freaking out and he's not. And I was just, it's been a good reminder for me. And it is just the Lord has helped me see that in a, in a new, fresh way. And so, you know, pray that whenever we go through any kind of scripture, whether, you know, we're teaching it here or in Sunday school or your own Bible reading, say, Lord, help me see this. Maybe for the first, you know, like I did for the first time, help it be new again, help it be fresh again. Um, because sometimes we get, we get so familiar with certain things, like the presence of God with us everywhere we go. Like we know that, but it's not doing anything. And so it's just for me, like going through Revelation, like I said, and then last week, it just brought that home in a new way. Um, and it's just been amazing to see how God's been faithful to use His Word to help me personally. And so I just encourage you, you know, yes, we want right doctrine and we want to affirm that, but we also want to take what that right doctrine actually does in our lives on, a, on an everyday, every moment basis, we want it to be alive then too. And that's just something we need to pray regularly. Lord, may this truth that we're considering meet me in the everyday of life. Um, I've, like I said, I've just experienced that uh, recently with, with last week's sermon and what we've been going through in Revelation. And so I just encourage you to, to, to pray that way and look for that and see how God works. All right, we're going to read Matthew chapter 8. I'm going to begin reading in verse 14, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter just to kind of reestablish the context, and then I'll pray and we'll get in to the message. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea that, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. 
but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw Him, they begged Him to leave their region. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to study Your Word God, these are, this is a story that we are familiar with. But I pray, Lord, that You will open our eyes anew. That You'll revive our hearts. That You'll enlighten our eyes. That You'll instruct us, encourage us, challenge us, correct us, rebuke us, teach us. Whatever we may need through this passage. Lord, I ask for Your help right now to be faithful to Your Word in all that I say and in how I apply this. And I pray that we would all be built up in Christ through our time in this passage this morning. And Lord, we do pray that if there is one here in this church building or listening um, on the live stream, God, that if they are not a believer, if they have not yet turned from their sin and turned to Christ in faith and in trust, believing Him to be their only hope for forgiveness and eternal life, Lord, work through this message today to open their eyes and bring them to saving faith. God, we commit our hearts and our minds to You and pray that You would be glorified in these next few moments. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we've been in Matthew 8 here and there as we finish the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to go back to the very end of chapter 7, okay? because it does have relevance for what we're going to talk about this afternoon. Jesus has just finished the Sermon on the Mount. Um, he's, we've gone through that. It's amazing everything that's there. And it says in verse 28, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And why is that? Matthew tells us, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. If there are two things that consistently surprised people, consistently drew their attention, made them take notice when it came to Jesus, it was his authority over everything and his power over everything. His authority and his power consistently surprised the Pharisees and the Jews and those who saw him. But that's what we see on display in this passage, chapter 8, and throughout the rest of the Gospels. I mean, Jesus is displaying his authority and power over at least four different categories of existence that we know. He's displaying his power and authority over sickness, which we read about 
Um, we wanted to read verse, the first part of chapter 8. He cleanses and heals the leper. Uh, the faith of the centurion, his, uh, his servant who is, who is paralyzed, he heals him. And so when we think of Jesus' power over sickness, we need to think he heals. That's what he's showing, that he can heal. We also see his power and authority over nature. I mean, in the passage Scott preached through last week, you've got the winds and the waves, and it's, it seems like, what can a human being do? And Jesus just speaks a word, and it's still. And so when we think of his power and authority over nature, we think he calms it, he stills it. Our passage this morning, or this, this afternoon, we see Jesus' power over the demonic realm, over demons, over spiritual beings. And as we're going to see, as we've already seen and will continue to see, when it comes to demons, he casts them out. The other area that we're going to get to at some point down the way in Matthew chapter 9, the fourth kind of category, the fourth area where Jesus is showing his power and, and his authority is in the forgiveness of sins. He has power and authority over sin. That's what's so amazing in the passage to come is not that he can heal this, this, this lame man, this, this paralytic who's laying on the bed. It's, it's that he can forgive the guy's sin. And that's the bigger deal than healing his body. And so Jesus has power over what? He has power over sickness. He has power over nature. He has power over demons. And he has power over sin. And as, as I said, our, our passage this afternoon, we see him displaying in a very... Um, in, a, in a more detailed way, his power over the demonic realm, his power over demons, fallen angels, as we'll look at just a little bit more um, here in a minute. So I've got four points. It's going to be very similar to last week's points. It's just the nature of these, these passages, um, how, they're, how they're kind of broken up and, and how, they kind of, how they unfold. First point, and I'll, I'll mention these again when I come to them, but I'll, I'll mention them at the beginning. Number one, Jesus comes to the demons. We're going to see that. This is an amazing thing. Jesus comes to the demons. It's verse 28. Second point, the demons respond to Jesus. The demons respond to Jesus. That's verses 28 through 31. Thirdly, we see Jesus responds to the demons. Verse 32. And then our fourth point is the people respond to Jesus. And that's verses 33 through 34. So let's look at the first one here. Jesus comes to the demons, verse 28. It says, And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. So we have to understand in the flow of this story, Jesus is not here by accident. I mean, we go back to the passage before last week's sermon Look at um, verse 18 again. It says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side, the other side of the sea. So that was already his plan from the get-go, is to get to the other side of the sea. That's where he wanted to go. He was not ending up there accidentally. It was on purpose. It was his intention. And so we could, you know, if you want a snazzy way to say it, everywhere that Jesus goes is intentional. When you read this in the Gospels, everywhere he goes is intentional. Nowhere he goes is accidental. Nowhere. Nowhere. He's everywhere he goes, he is intentionally there. Everywhere Jesus takes us, because remember, his disciples are with him, and so we can apply this to us. Everywhere he takes you and me is intentional. Nowhere is accidental. He takes us everywhere intentionally and nowhere accidentally. 
And now, though the disciples don't really factor into this story, they are there through everything we're going to look at. They, they, they have more of a part to play in the previous one in the boat. And they, they, we don't really see them as other than when he came to the other side, when they came, as it says in um, Luke or Mark, they're there with him during all of this. And so they're seeing it, they're experiencing it, they're watching, they're seeing what Jesus does, they're seeing how people respond, but they are there because that's where Jesus wanted them to be. And so we need to understand that whenever we find ourselves anywhere, we are where Jesus wants us. Like, this is so freeing if you're a follower of Christ. Like, if, you are, if you're just with Him, seeking Him every day, and you find yourself in some crazy situations, you're not there by accident. You're not there by accident. And Jesus has taken you there, and Jesus is with you while you're there. I mean, we, we should still just marvel at the fact that Jesus is there with us wherever He takes us to go. He's not going to send us somewhere and then not be there with us. Remember the end of the Great Commission. He says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's nowhere you and I can go that Jesus isn't there with us. And so again, the disciples don't factor into this so much in this story, but they are there because that's where Jesus wanted them to be. They don't play a part, but they're still learning because that's what disciples do. Jesus takes us to many divinely ordained moments, and that's where he wants to show his power in our lives and through us. And in this particular situation, this is a divinely ordained moment where Jesus intends to show his power over demons. And this is a big deal when we think about demons. And so let's look at the second point. The demons respond to Jesus. Let's look again at what they say in verse 32, verses 28 through 32. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him. That's a good translation. They pleaded with him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. And so they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Now, before we, we get into who these, what these demons were doing, their actual response to Jesus, we need to think just a little bit about the background of demons. I mean, we, we're familiar with that somewhat, uh, but I want to give maybe just a little more information for you here. I hope this is, this is helpful. It's one of the questions I get um, you know, teaching classes, you know, what are, what are demons, angels, all of that? It's, it's one of those, they're, they're creatures that God made, but we don't have any direct interaction with them that we know of. And so they're more unfamiliar to us. And so we, we read about them and we're curious, who are these beings? So demons are simply put fallen angels. Okay, when Satan rebelled against God, he had a number of other angels rebel alongside him and they were all cast out from the presence of God for their rebellion. They are called unclean spirits in other places. And what's their purpose? As we, we read the Gospels and other parts of Scripture, what is it that demons are up to? What, what is it they want to do? And I, I can give you at least two things. There's probably more. 
You can probably find a lot more, but at least two. Number one, they are bent on trying to frustrate God's plans. And number two, they are intent on ruining God's image bearers. Satan and his angels absolutely hate humanity. They absolutely hate God's image bearers. And if what we know about Satan is true, his fall, he, he became jealous of God. He wanted to be in the place of God. And he wasn't allowed that because he's not God. And so when God creates these, these human beings, these image bearers who are actually in the image of God, and God said, they're the ones who are going to be my vice regents. They're going to rule. They're going to reign on my earth. Satan was enraged. And he hates every single one of us, whether believer or unbeliever, Satan and his demons hate people. And that's why we read a passage like this. They're, they're, they're possessing, they're, they're demonizing these two men. And what, what is it that they do? How do we see the, the, the ferocity of their hatred? It says they're so fierce, no one could pass that way. Hold your place there and look at Mark chapter 5, the related one of the related passages talking about this particular instance. Mark chapter 5, look at verses 3 and 5. Just flip a little bit to the right. And while you're turning, I'll say this. Obviously, Mark and Luke talk about one guy, Matthew talks about two, and some people try to say, oh, see, it's a Bible contradiction. No, Mark and Luke don't say there was only one. They just focus on one. And I think it's likely Matthew's reporting, yeah, there was two, but they don't say anything in Matthew's gospel. But they do talk, the, the, the guy does talk in Mark and Luke. Um, and I think what we need to see here is Mark and Luke are focusing on the guy who was probably worse off than the other and the one who actually talked and responded in, in a more clear way. So Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, is talking about uh, the one man, but I think we can infer this, the other one too. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Look at Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verse 27. Flip to the right again. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had lived in a house had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. And so what demons can do is they can overwhelm and just completely take over a person. Literally, it's not demon-possessed, it's demonized. Um, they've been overwhelmed, completely taken over. Uh, when demons do this, they can give a person unnatural strength, um, an unnatural mindset, sometimes a really freaky voice, but strength to do unnatural and harmful things to others and to themselves. 
Because humanity in their right mind is not, we're not going to treat our bodies the way the, um, the, these two men were treating themselves, cutting themselves with stones, crying out, living in the place of the dead where bodies are buried and all of that. That's just not where we're going to be. But demons are going to do that. Think about the fact they, they would be shackled and they could break the chains. I mean, the people back then, they weren't dumb. They knew how to make strong metallic chains and all. They knew how to do that. And these demons could rip them apart. That's not human strength. That's a, that's a supernatural demonic strength that they would not be able to do otherwise. And so it's evidence here by the way these men are living, by the way they're treating themselves, it's evidence proving that demons and Satan hate people in general. They just hate people. Now, they have an especial dislike for God's people, but they hate humanity. You think of the issue of abortion, that we see the utter hatred of a human life that we see in that. That might not be somebody demon-possessed, but it is definitely demonically inspired. Same thing with the transgender movement. All that we see going on in the world today, the way they're encouraging people to treat their bodies, that does not come from God. That comes from Satan. And let's just be honest and let's say that. Okay? That's evil. It's absolutely evil. But that's what demons do. They hate humanity, and they're going to do everything they can to destroy humanity. And we see that here pictured with these two men. Now, here's something important. Demons are not more powerful than Jesus. They're not equally powerful with Jesus, but they are more powerful than any human being. We need to remember that. They are powerful, supernatural beings. <clears throat> we see that in Mark 5 and Luke 8. Turn quickly to Acts chapter 19. Yes, I'm making you turn a lot today. I hope you're all right with that. Acts chapter 19. If you don't want to turn there, that's fine. I'll, I'll just read this. It's an interesting story. Um, this is what Paul is doing his ministry in Ephesus. It says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit, just one evil spirit here, leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And it obviously, a story like that's going to spread. Everybody hears about it. I mean, these guys, there's seven of them, um, you know, and they do this kind of thing, and they couldn't do it. Paul, Jesus did it by a word. Paul does it by a word, or if they just touch something that he touched. And so obviously, that's a big deal. But we learn from this that demons unclean spirits are very, very powerful. Very, very powerful. Than, more so than any of us. Though they are not more powerful than Jesus. And there's going to be a little bit more to say on that um, in a minute. So let's look at their response now. Okay, back in Matthew chapter 8. We, we've learned a little bit about demons, who they are, where they come from, what their purpose is. And let's look at their response to Jesus. Because this is amazing. This is their response. First, they came to Jesus. Jesus didn't come out of the boat and say, all right, where are you at? Let's go find these demons. All he had to do was step on land and then they came to him. They literally came in, a, in a Mark and Luke talks about they threw themselves down on the ground. Now, they came to him, that's obvious. Another thing they tried to do was to control him. 
They tried to control Jesus. You're like, wait, what? I'm not quite seeing that here. They did that by trying to name him. Because when it comes to the ancient world and stuff like that, um, knowing somebody's name, in a sense, could give you, they thought, could give you power over that person. Um, and so they try to name Jesus. You know, it, it's not just, you know, they're asking this question. Oh, you know, you know, when they say, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Um, it, it's not like they're, they're just asking this question. They're trying to get control over Jesus. If you know someone is, you can control them. And so it's more like they're bullies and they're, you know, you're, you're coming in and they're, hey, I know who you are. You can't do anything in here. It's that kind of mentality. What have you got to do with us, son of God? And they think by saying that, that they can make Jesus do what they want, which obviously they can't. They have no authority over him. What did, what did they ask him to do? What did they ask him to do? It's amazing. If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. They, they, oh, sorry, before that, they said, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And so they're asking him, don't torment us with final judgment yet. Don't torment us with final judgment. You can look at Matthew 25, 41. They know there's a place prepared for them because Jesus in that parable <clears throat> talks about casting unbelievers into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So there's a place of torment and punishment that God specifically made for the devil and his angels that even unbelievers are going to go to at the final judgment. And they demonstrate here also that they don't even understand Jesus's character. They're expecting him to respond to them the way they've treated the, the two men. Harsh, mean, like all of this. That's what they're expecting by this torment because that's what they did with humanity. And Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't treat them as they deserve even though that's what they're expecting. And so knowing they, they have an opportunity here, they're like, send us into the herd of pigs rather than face judgment. And Jesus, it's not like he's like angry, get out of here. It's more like you may go. So the emphasis of the word there, he gives them permission to go into this, this herd of 2,000 pigs and they destroy themselves in the sea. And so let's consider then Jesus' response to these demons. Okay, there's a lot of instructive material for us here. Look again at verse 32. He said to them, go. And so they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. And so we see just quite clearly, he commands them to come out of the men. And his response to these demons, he commands them to come out of the men. Uh, same thing we see in Mark 5, 8, Luke 8, 29. Now, what's, what's instructive for us is that Jesus didn't need an elaborate ritual to, uh, to get these demons to come out. All he had to do was speak. We talked about the people are amazed at his authority. They're amazed at his power. No one's like him. Their people can't do what Jesus does. The scribes and the Pharisees, they can't do what Jesus does. And so all he does is speak a word and they're out. And this matters. You think back to the Acts 19 passage and the, the Jewish um, exorcist. There was actually like a whole system in place for, for exorcism, casting out demons in the, in the Jewish religion. Okay, I looked this up. It's, it's fascinating. Like they had this multiple step process that they had to go through if they were going to cast a demon out of somebody. So th this is, this is some, of what it, some of what they would do. Sometimes it would be all of this. Sometimes it'd be part, parts of this. But listen to this. First, if you're going to cast a demon out, you had to have a truly pious man, like a rabbi or something like that. Secondly, that man had to go through a ritual purification 
where he had to like be considered cleansed and pure, and that was washings and various things like that. Sometimes the exorcist sought the help of what they called a maggot, uh, a benevolent spirit. So he's asking another spirit who's a good spirit to come help him cast out a bad spirit. Uh, there often have to be ten witnesses present for this. Uh, they would use smoke and sulfur. It would uh, kind of coerce cooperation. Apparently, demons don't like smoke and sulfur, so if you use that, you can kind of gain power over them. They would interrogate the demon. You've seen the exorcist just sitting there talking to the demon. It's, it's foolish. Like we, we see this and we say, that's absolutely foolish, but this is what they did. They would interrogate the demon. They'd have this long question and answer session where they could try to figure out his name. Remember, you know his name, you have power over them. So they could get his name and thus gain power over the demon. And they do this round after round. They'd have these scripted rituals with threats and rebukes and you better come out if you don't. And I mean, it would just keep on going. And sometimes they would even use physical force to beat the demon out of somebody. They would also use protective passages of Scripture to help. Uh, Psalm 10, Psalm 91, Psalm 127 said we're very helpful when you're trying to cast out a demon. They would make use of specific prayers, light candles, burn lamps, and even have amulets that they would hold on to. And the the sign of a successful exorcism was a bloody fingernail or a bloody toenail. That's where the demon would come in and that's where they'd go out, supposedly. And so keep all that in mind. When Jesus comes up, and we read earlier in Matthew 8, He cast them out, how? By a word. Go. And they go. He didn't have to do all that. And by the way, if you ever encounter one, you don't have to do all that either. But we see that's the same with Paul. Paul, he didn't go through all those rituals. He just spoke in the name of Jesus, come out, and out they came. We don't need elaborate rituals. We only need the name and power of Jesus. Now, we do not and we should not go searching for demons to cast out. Let me just guess we have power in Jesus to overcome them, but don't go looking for a fight. Don't go looking for a fight. Uh, here in the U.S., we don't experience this a whole lot. If you go overseas, the more where pagan religion has a greater hold, you might experience this more. But don't go looking for a fight. You know, all those movies where you got people doing, you know, fighting demons with their special bows and arrows and crawl, like that is so ridiculous. They would overwhelm any person in an instant. That just doesn't happen. So we don't go searching for them, but should you ever be unfortunate enough, unfortunate enough to encounter one, take refuge in the name of Jesus. That's all you have to do. You take refuge in his name and in his power and in the strength of his name. And that's it. That's all you have. There's nothing greater than that. That's all you need. And Jesus is showing his divine authority and power even over these most powerful of created supernatural beings. Don't fear the demons. Fear Jesus who is an authority and has power over the demons. And here's another thing. We Christians can't be demon-possessed or demonized the way these fellows were. Okay, One, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. You belong to Jesus. Satan is no longer your master. His power to dominate you has been broken. Yes, he can still entice through sin. He can lie. He can deceive. He, He can do some outward pressure, but he can never take you over. He cannot because you belong to Jesus and his spirit indwells 
you. So don't worry about, can a Christian be demon-possessed? No, the answer is no, he cannot. Now, one other thought, and then we're going to move on. Don't get superstitious either with the whole spiritual realm. We have to be very careful because we are so prone to this. I know stories of people when they move into a new house, they have to have their pastor come in and he has to walk around the house and he has to pray the blood of Jesus and the power of Jesus over the house so that Satan can't have any influence. Nowhere are we told to do that in Scripture. I'm not saying it's wrong when you move into a new home say, Lord, please help us use this house for your glory and your honor. But you don't have some special protection over your house because you prayed a prayer like that. Don't be superstitious with this, guys. Avoid that at all costs. Stick with what Scripture says. Don't go beyond it, and you will be much better off. And so here's another interesting thing. I kind of already mentioned this. Jesus mercifully, quote-unquote, grants the request of these demons and sends them into the pigs. But it's ironic because these are unclean spirits, and He sends them into unclean animals. Remember, to the Jews, pigs were, you don't eat bacon, you don't eat pork, you stay away from pigs. They're unclean. You come in contact with a pig, you're unclean. And, and it's, it's unthinkable that a Jewish person would have anything to do with, with a, a herd of pigs and trying to make money off of that. That's an abomination to the Jews. Remember back to the prodigal son. He had, he had fallen so low that he was willing to eat the food that the, un, the most unclean animals that he knew of were eating. The, the, the food that the pigs were eating. Okay, Pigs are bad if you're a Jew. All right, They're unclean. And so Jesus sends these unclean spirits into these unclean animals. And not only do demons hate humanity above all, they hate all of God's creation. I mean, look at what they do. They, they went in, it says, verse 32, they, they went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. They might be unclean, but it's still wanton, useless destruction of something that God had made. And what happened to the demons after the pigs drowned? The text doesn't say, and I'm not going to attempt to speculate. So let's look now at how the people respond to Jesus. We've seen that he came to the demons. The demons respond to Jesus. Jesus responds to the demons. How do the people around respond? Okay, first let's look at the two demon-possessed men. doesn't really say what happens to them other than Jesus got rid of the demons. But look again real quick in Mark chapter 5, where you can listen while I read. Listen to what it says. Look at verse 14. It says, The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man the one who had been the lead, who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Wow! Look at Luke chapter eight. Or just listen to this. When the herdsmen saw it, they went and told the people. Came out, and they found the man whom the demons had gone out of whom they'd gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Again, there's two. Mark and Luke only focus on the one. But what happened to these men? Let's think about this. They were clothed. They were naked before. Now they're clothed. They were out of their mind. Now they're in their right mind. And I love what it says. They were sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's a beautiful, beautiful picture. 
And at least one of them, it says, uh, wanted to go with Jesus. Um, You don't have to turn back to this again. But it says, the man from whom the demons had gone, this is at the end of Luke chapter 8 in this section, he begged that he might be with Jesus. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home, declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now, I want to make some application to this. Everyone who is freed by Jesus, changed by Jesus, will sit at his feet, as it were, to be his disciple, to listen to him, to learn from him. It's impossible to be saved by Jesus and not be forever changed. It's impossible. I shared this illustration, I think, last Sunday in Sunday school, but it bears repeating. Um, If I were to have come in here, and I'm changing it a little bit, um, and you know, I'm, I'm preaching today, and you know, it's time Ian and Emma finished, Greg's not here. I come in, you know, my shirt's a little dusty, a little bit untucked. I've got a few scrapes on my face. And I'm like, y'all, sorry, sorry I'm late. I was walking on the interstate and a, a semi going about 75 miles an hour ran over me. So it, you know, it hurt a little bit and, you know, I just, I need to be here. Um, and so I'm sorry I'm late, but that, that's why. You would look at me and you'd say, you're absolutely crazy. That didn't happen. Why? Because if you encounter a fully loaded semi at 75 miles an hour on the interstate, you're not going to leave that encounter unchanged. You're going to be forever changed as in dead in that situation. And the point is, when we say, I've encountered the creator of the universe, the savior of the world, but I haven't changed a bit, I don't believe you. The scriptures don't believe you. You can't meet Jesus and not be different. That doesn't mean you're perfect, but it does mean you'll be forever changed and you are now on a trajectory of a new life that you will never get off of. You can't meet Jesus and leave unchanged conversion even more regeneration it alters our public behavior so that we now behave in god honoring and appropriate ways think about it these guys were naked for years and one of the first things that happens is they clothe themselves they actually put clothes on their their public behavior has changed that's one of sometimes one of the the, the most obvious Uh, signs that someone has come to faith in Christ is a lot of the things they did publicly that were wrong, they stopped doing. Doesn't mean they stop, they they, they never struggle with sin or, or fall short, but it does mean a lot of the public stuff, it gets changed. We see that with these guys. They're sitting clothed. They're appropriate. They're wanting to honor God publicly. Regeneration will also put us in a place of sanity and clear thinking and on a path of continued renewal of our minds. I mean, that literally says that in Mark and Luke, they were in their right mind. They weren't in their right mind before. We should be the most sane people in the world if we know Jesus. Christians should be. Again, we fall short of that, but we should be, and we should strive for that. God makes us sane. He renews our minds, puts us in our right mind more and more by the Spirit through the Word. I mean, you remember R.C. Sproul's ministry, Renewing Your Mind, or his podcast. Is it from Romans 12? We know, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so God puts us in our right mind when he saves us so that we start thinking clearly for the first time, maybe. We actually understand who we are, what our purpose is, what we're supposed to be doing with ourselves. We don't get that before we come to Jesus. But if we're following Jesus, we now have a purpose because we know the one who made us and tells us why we're here. And as far as our responsibility goes, we must be regularly in God's word so that his word gets 
way in us, increasingly in us, to renew us and shape us and mold us into all that God wants us to be. That's how it happens. Regeneration, this new life, it will produce a lasting desire to learn from Jesus. I mean, it still strikes me that they were sitting at his feet and and one of these guys wanted to go with Jesus when Jesus left. I want to be wherever Jesus is. That should be the cry of our heart if we're saved. I want him. I want more of him. I want to follow him. I want to devote my life to him. Regeneration will also produce in us a desire to tell of what God has done for us and to tell others about the hope that's available to them in the gospel. This guy, you know, he didn't complain when Jesus said, stay here and go and tell. What did he do? He went and he told. Like when we get saved, when we come to know Christ, when when he gives us new life, it, it should produce in us this irrepressible desire to speak to others about him. It should. Like not every Christian is going to be as gifted at it as others But we should all want to and we should all be striving to in the opportunities and the context God has put us in. We can't hold it in. When we have hope, we got to share hope. So that's how the two demon-possessed men responded. Lastly, let's look at how the local people responded. Again, just drawing from the text. It says they came out to meet Jesus and when they saw Him, they begged Him to leave the region. They saw everything that had happened and the men And their response was, please get out of here. Jesus, please go. So they were greatly afraid. We learned from the other passages. They they were seized with great fear. They begged Jesus to leave. Why? Because these people, their fear was not the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. We read about in Proverbs. This is an unbelieving fear, a faithless fear. They don't want such a powerful individual in their midst. They don't trust him. They see that he, can, he has power over thousands of demons and he just took their pigs away. They don't trust this guy. All he is is some powerful miracle worker to them and they don't want anything to do with him. They don't want him close. He's bad for business. Think about how much money whoever the owners of those pigs lost when those pigs went into the sea and drowned. Jesus cost them a lot of money doing what was right and serving and freeing those two men. He's bad for business. And if he sticks around, man, what other sources of income is he going to go after? We're going to be poor if Jesus stays close to us. We need him gone. In this instance, Jesus granted the people their request. That's sad. Not that he did it, but that that's what they wanted and they got what they wanted. But think about this. He didn't just leave because they asked him to leave. He also sent that demon-possessed, the formerly demon-possessed man to go and preach. Why is that important? Why is that important? Because we see in this instance how divisive Jesus' presence was. And he knew, I think, that if he went there what, who he was and what he had done would be too disruptive for people to listen to what he was saying. So he sent the, sent the guy healed to go. And what does it say in the other places? They marveled and were astonished at what had happened to this guy. So that's interesting to think about. So sometimes, guys, we have to realize this. Sometimes the message and the power of Jesus will be welcome. 
And sometimes it will be opposed and unwelcome. We have no control over that. No control whatsoever over how people respond to the gospel. Sometimes it's going to have a great effect on a city, on a region. Think of Acts chapter 19 in the region of Ephesus. People, like, they, they were confessing their, their magic practices, their, their evil things that they were doing. They, they brought all their, their magic books and they burned them. And it was like 40,000 pieces of silver. Like, it was a lot of money that they just burned because they realized this is evil. This is wicked. We want Jesus. We don't want this anymore. And so you see this great effect of people forsaking their past practices, forsaking their sin, and it's public and it's evident. And sometimes, sometimes that happens. And sometimes it will be such a threat. The gospel will be such a threat that it's going to be publicly opposed in that very same region, actually. The silversmiths were like, um, you know, this Paul keeps preaching Jesus and he's kind of turning the world upside down. And what if that starts affecting our bottom line? We make all these shrines for Artemis and it could put us out of business. And so what do they do? They, he, they stir up the whole city against Paul. They have this massive riot. And for two hours in this theater where everybody gathers, they're just shouting and screeching and screaming, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so sometimes the gospel will be very evidently opposed. Here's our responsibility. We preach it as faithfully as we can. And we pray to God earnestly and regularly for genuine conversion to take place. That's what we do. That's what we do. Sometimes God's going to answer in a very public way and we're going to see massive effects in the society around us. We'll see true revival, a great awakening. And sometimes, all we do is sow seeds. All we do is sow seeds. What if it's in the next generation that God's going to do that? You don't get to see it. Will you be less faithful if you don't see what you hope to see? But what if it's your faithfulness in sowing the seeds that God uses to lead to that great awakening or that great revival down the road? We got to be content either way. We got to be content either way, especially if someone else gets the glory in that. Because we think of great people, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, and so on. And, and like it's, it's not wrong to want to be used of God in that way. But let's, what if God has somebody else in mind and not me, not you? we got to be content to be as faithful as we can be with what God has given us. Pray earnestly, share earnestly, share often as we're able, and trust the work to God. Are we content to sow the seeds and trust God to bring the harvest? And I'll say this, like, and this is something I've had to wrestle with at, at times in my life. How we answer that question will reveal much about whether we're seeking God's glory or our own. Whose glory do we really seek? God's or God's plus mine? May God help us be in a place where we want His glory, even if that means we get no recognition. In conclusion, let me say this. Every time Jesus saves a person, He is delivering that person from the power of Satan to God, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. Jesus came and invaded Satan's territory, and He is setting people free from Satan's tyranny and Satan's lies. And so, even if you're not demon-possessed, this is, this is what we need to hear. It's not just demon-possessed people who need the power of Jesus to free them. Even if you're not demon-possessed, you're still under Satan's dominion. You're still under his dominion, and you're separated from God in your sin and your own willing rebellion against God and his truth. 
right now the truth of Jesus, the truth of the gospel, if that is you and you are still apart from Christ, the truth of the gospel is invading your life right now. Right now, it is invading your life with the hope and the promise of forgiveness, eternal life, fellowship with God forever, reconciliation with God, and freedom from the lies and the tyranny of the devil. And so my last question is simply this. Will you trust in Jesus? Will you trust in him for your forgiveness, for your new life, for your freedom? He died and rose again for that very thing, and it will be yours if you will come to him today. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing passage you've given us. And I pray, Lord, that we would take it to heart that our Savior has authority and power over everything. And that's good news for us. We thank you that you set us free from Satan's tyranny and oppression, whether that's actual demonic possession or just his lies and his deceits. Thank you that in Jesus we have freedom to know you, to walk with you, and to be your children. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.